Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this, the eighth and final lecture in the Rare Book School summer series. Brian Cassidy has been in the book business in one form or another since 1994. In 2004, he established the eponymous Brian Cassidy Bookseller, a rare book firm specializing in modern and contemporary literature, the beats, poetry, popular culture, esoterica, artists' books, the avant-garde in all its various forms, from music to film and from art to dance, small journals and magazines, especially those associated with the Mimeo Revolution, letters, manuscripts, and archives, as well as vernacular, folk, and outsider books. Brian is a graduate of Loyola College in Baltimore, a distinguished institution run by that most esteemed of all groups of educators, the Society of Jesus, known to Ignatius Loyola as the least society in a great oxymoron. Uh, but he also holds an MFA from, from the highly prestigious University of Iowa Writers Workshop. He is a member of the Independent Online Booksellers Association, the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers, the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, that's the ABAA, the Washington Area Booksellers Association, the Washington Rare Book Group, WashRag, uh, Baltimore Bibliophiles, the Fine Press Book Association, and the Bibliographical Society of America. Indications of Brian's prominence in the field include his membership in the faculty of the Colorado Antiquarian Book Seminar, CABS, which I warmly recommend to you, and the fact that and this might be a unique trifecta his work has been featured in the Washington Post Sunday Magazine, in fine books and collections, and in the ABAA History Series. Most significantly of all, however, by far, Brian Cassidy is a proud alumnus of Rare Book School at the University of Virginia. Please join me in welcoming him. Uh, thank you, Michael, for that um, very warm introduction. Um, I, I feel like having listened to some of these uh, before that you're contractually obligated um, to hy hyperbolic praise. Um, but, so thank you. Um, thank you to, uh, to Rare Book School for inviting me uh, and hosting me. Um, in reviewing some of the uh, past lectures that have been in this series, I, I, I've noticed that really only maybe a couple of handful of booksellers have been invited. Um, two of those were Bill Reese, and, and one of them was Johnny Jenkins. Um, nevertheless, uh, it's a privilege to be here. Um, <laughs> uh, a quick note um, before we start running through the slides. Um, everything that I'm going to show you uh, here today is from the collection that I've been building around the history and identification of duplicating technologies, with just a couple of exceptions. Um, two of the exceptions um, are things that I have sold or handled um, and the one exception in which neither of those things is the case I think will be obvious, um, but for the most part, everything you see up here is, is part of that collection. Um, 
In September 2012, I was exhibiting at the New York Art Book Fair at MoMA PS1 in Long Island City. I had recently assembled a large collection of flyers from the influential L.A. punk band Black Flag, all featuring art by Raymond Pettibon, the most important American punk visual artist, and after Jamie Reed, who created many of the Sex Pistols promotional materials, the most collectible of punk designers. Shortly after the fair opened, David Platzker came over to introduce himself. For the last several years, David has been curator of prints at MoMA, but in 2012 he was still directing his own gallery and bookselling operation, Specific Object, which he recently relaunched. And it was there in 2008 that he curated St. Remin Pettibon, 1978-1986, which remains the largest exhibition of Pettibon flyers and related ephemera to date. After a few minutes of chatting, David stood back to take a look at my flyers. A minute or two later, he called me over. I think he began carefully, some of these have problems. He began pointing at several of the flyers. That one, and that one, and that one, and that one. Oh, there's another. He paused. That one, and that one, yes, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. He went on for quite a while. Oh, one more. He paused and explained. Some of these are on the wrong color paper, or the stock is too bright. I'm pretty sure several of these are later Xeroxes of the originals, and a couple look very recent to me. He'd identified, as you can sadly see, no less than half of what I had is problematic. I was embarrassed but grateful and took the flyers off the market immediately. Attempting to save some face, I explained how the provenance of the material hadn't, hadn't given me any reason to be skeptical. All had come from either dealers I respected or aging punks. None had questionable eBay origins or had arrived in the hands of twitchy kids looking for a fast buck. David commiserated. It can be hard. A lot of these bands just ran off more flyers when they needed them, but with Pettibon it is a little easier. Almost all of his flyers were printed offset. I thanked him for his help. I nodded as if I understood, but I had no idea what he was talking about. I had always assumed such flyers were typically Xeroxed. Indeed, the best book on the art of the punk flyer was then and remains now the aptly titled Fucked Up and Photocopied. But David's comments suddenly left me with numerous questions. How does one tell an authentic plot punk flyer? How can you determine when a flyer was printed? How do you differentiate offset from Xerox? And where is the guide to all of this? Figuring one must exist. I consulted with several colleagues in the book trade who, like me, specialized in modern and contemporary materials, areas of specialization where one re regularly encounters duplicated items, but no one knew of a resource. All, had, all seemed to rely on what I had, some combination of connoisseurship and provenance, which is to say, their gut. An answer I now found deeply problematic given the prices that were being asked for much of this material. For context, a legitimate Pettibon flyer, depending on size, condition, and the like, can retail for anywhere between $250 and $750. And as I looked around, I realized I was already aware that this was a problem not just with punk flyers, but with many modern duplicated materials. I've long had a bibliographic interest in one of the most valuable and important works of 20th century American poetry, the true first edition of Allen Ginsberg's Howl, the so-called Howl Mimeo, which despite this commonly used shorthand was not mimeographed, but in fact spirit duplicated, or dittoed, an entirely different process in a tiny edition months before the publication of the better-known City Lights edition. Here is the last copy to come to auction, which appeared at Bonhams in 2013, and which the auction house, 
twice described mistakenly there at the bottom as mimeographed, which would not itself be so terrible if they had not also at the same time in the same description described it correctly as dittoed. A cataloging error that makes about as much sense as describing something simultaneously as a lithograph and a woodcut. But unfortunately, this is not an uncommon error. Numerous scholars, booksellers, and biographers regularly misdescribe this item. My point here is not to call out, um, to call anyone out. Indeed, as I hope my opening anecdote suggested, I have made such errors and worse myself. Nor is it to be merely pedantic. Rather, I hope to suggest with this single exemplar the scope of the problem I want to talk about tonight. If experienced and knowledgeable catalogers and academics were making these errors, even for a major piece like Howell, then the field as the whole must be rife for misidentification. And if this was so, if, as it appeared, there was no guide to identifying these duplicating methods, and if I wanted to handle these materials and handle them with any kind of authority, I began to suspect I might have to teach myself. It soon occurred to me that I already had a start. Because after my talk with David, I knew with a reasonable degree of certainty which, uh, or confidence which flyers were good and which were not, and that a close comparison of these might begin to yield some of the answers I was looking for. I further reasoned that if I could gather a large enough collection of other such what I came to think of as givens across duplicating processes, that as the collection grew, so too would the opportunities to triangulate information. So I began. I searched for pieces where I knew the method of duplication, often because it announced itself somewhere in the publication itself, as here. This is the gargoyle, a tiny, short-lived anti-war periodical published in 1966 by an AWOL pacifist marine named John Morgan. Morgan fled Camp Lejeune and began issuing the gargoyle via perhaps the most basic and primitive of all duplicating methods, the hectograph a process that requires little more than a pan, some gelatin and glue to create a printing bed, and alanine ink, whose tincture properties allow it to easily pass from master to gelatin to subsequent copies, as this diagram shows. You can see here Morgan apologizing for the quality of his reproduction and bemoaning how the North Carolina heat was interfering with his printing by making it difficult for the gelatin in his unpresupposing hectograph to set. Similarly, I found this tiny, essentially self-published book of poetry written by one Walter Hart Blumenthal. The book is at first glance rather unremarkable, but laid in is a note from the book's designer and printer explaining that although the book was designed on a Veritiper, believe it or not, that's the quote over on the side, believe it or not, the book is printed via Xerox, could be a good advertisement for them. Or this amateur ham radio zine, which began as a hectograph here, soon upgrades to a ditto, then a mimeograph, and finally, when its circulation grew sufficiently, outsourcing to a print shop that could offset, all the while discussing each of these changes along the way. I also gathered examples of the 19th century origins of duplication, such as this mid-1800s lithographed holograph, uh, holograph letter, or this rare stencil-duplicated Omar Khayyam from 1885, or this modest volume of hectographed hymns. I also assembled contemporary accounts of these technologies, manuals on how to operate the machines, supply catalogs, guides to office printing, technical books on the science of duplication, sorry, there we are, and marketing materials from the companies, them, uh, sorry, <laughs> 
um, books by forensic document examiners, excuse me, and marketing materials from the companies themselves. Um, and a quick side note, there's almost certainly a doctoral dissertation to be written on the representation of women in the promotional publications of office machine companies. Uh, but joking aside, marketing materials such as these have been among the most useful I've found. Often they contain the clearest indications of how these technologies worked, what they were capable of, and even how they looked. And as you might imagine, many of these items serve multiple purposes. For example, here are a pair of exquisite broadside advertisements for mimeograph manufacturer Gestetner that are themselves mimeographed. Or this stencil duplicated guide to stencil duplicating, produced as a promotion for a stencil duplication company. Or even this mimeographed handbook to using a mimeograph, published by a labor union and written by one Bill, oops, why didn't it go back? There we go, Bill Stencil. Uh, and yes, that's his real name. I've checked the uh, census records. Um, I also gathered problematic or difficult to identify or even deceptively duplicated materials. Here, for example, is a small artist book by the pop sculptor Klaus Oldenburg, which you will often find described as having hand-titled covers or even covers hand-titled by the artist. And as you can see, it very much looks like someone has taken a marker, altered the title, and added a small drawing of a flower below. And indeed, when we turn over and examine the verso of the cover, you can plainly see what appears to be significant bleed through from the marker itself. But this is all just an illusion. In fact, the entire pamphlet was produced via offset, and under magnification, its telltale screen patterns reveal themselves. As many in this room will appreciate, the collection soon grew beyond even these reasonably defined parameters to include unusual duplicating methods, such as this tech school reunion menu printed by Blueprint, or this misogynistic cartoon dramatizing the dangers of women in the workplace, reproduced via another architectural process, Ozolid, and undoubtedly intended for male IBM engineers' amusement. Um, just for a sense of scale, this piece is about two feet by four feet. Um, I've acquired pieces that speak to the idea of copying and duplication, as with these copy papers made for children, or this beautifully, this beautifully designed um, box of carbon paper, as well as artist books that take on duplication as a theme. I've also gathered the tools of these processes themselves, whether that be mimeograph stencils, or the tools to prepare them, and even, God help me, the machines themselves. <laughs> Here is a mini mimeo machine used to produce postcards, and here, I'm inordinately proud to say, is my fully operational ditto machine. As you can see, I've really got quite carried away. Um, finally, and perhaps most importantly, however, I have also collected typical examples of how these technologies were commonly deployed, such as sci-fi fanzines, literary journals, um, and here, just as a side note, um, you can... Uh, see that the offset is so good here, the photo offset is so good it's reproduced the typewriter ribbon impression. Um, erotica and pornography, it will come as no surprise that this is a very popular use of these underground methods. Samizdat, this is a mimeograph text on how to send encrypted messages published by the resistance in Czechoslovakia during World War II, in other words a secret book on secret writing as well as pieces utilized in the struggle for equality, be that workers' rights, women's rights, student protest, civil rights, um, or LGBTQ equality. And while you would be correct, 
to surmise from these that duplicating technologies are often used by the less powerful to amplify their voices, as this spirit-duplicated contemporary eyewitness account of the Pearl Harbor bombings written in dialect by a Chinese-American would suggest. They were also leveraged for more nefarious ends, such as this 1940 mimeographed Vichy Constitution, likely distributed shortly after German tanks rolled across the Champs-Élysées. But what I began to realize was that while there was no single guide to these technologies, pieces of the puzzle were scattered about, and by gathering them and synthesizing them um, and comparing them to my growing set of givens and with a better understanding of how these duplicating technologies worked, I could begin to distinguish them. For example, to return to the gargoyle. On closer examination, you might notice that the text exhibits distortions in several places. Something I came to realize was not just the result of hot North Carolina summers, but of most hectographs, since the gelatin beds are inherently pliable. They give. And that this is a characteristic one does not see in spirit duplication, the method for which hectographs would be most readily confused. Likewise, I began to realize that photocopy machines could not reliably produce deep, even blacks until well into the 1980s, and that mimeography really cannot produce large, unbroken, solid blacks at all, as this would require essentially a large hole in the stencil, uh, something that would render it uh, more or less too unstable to use. So I came to recognize crisp, even blacks as one of the defining, but not the only, char defining characteristic of offset, something that if the name of your band was Black Flag, and this, whoops, sorry, and that is your logo. There we go. Um, you might consider before you started creating your flyers. Before we get too much further, however, uh, I want to be careful not to give the impression um, that there'd been no prior work on these subjects, or that I was some lone explorer hacking my way through the bibliographic jungle. Um, far from it. I'd like to mention in particular W.B. Proudfoot's indispensable The Origin of Stencil Duplication. Barbara Rhodes and William Streeter's Before Photocopying, Eleanor Rhodes, uh, I'm sorry, Eleanor Cassell and Aaron Vigneault's Architectural Photo Reproductions, and Ian Batterham's Excellence, The Office Copying Revolution, all of which began to address many of the technical questions I was seeking to answer. And from an historical and critical context, two recent books, Lisa Gittleman's Paper Knowledge Toward a Media History of Documents and Kate Eichhorn's Adjusted Margin, Xerography, Art, and Activism in the Late 20th Century, are indicative of efforts to begin to interrogate what these duplicated objects mean, as have uh, the work of our colleagues uh, Haven Holly, Haven, hi, um, as well as um, if you consider computers a duplicating technology, and I think they are, the work of Matthew Kirschenbaum, um, as well as the pioneering research of my friend and fellow bookseller Kevin Johnson, whose forthcoming guide to the bibliography of film scripts uh, promises to be groundbreaking. Um, indeed, in the interest of duplication, uh, this interest in duplication very much seems to be in the air at the moment. In recent years, I've been asked to give workshops on the identification of these technologies at NYU, Princeton, and Yale, and I have in several instances even trained individual bi bibliographers, iron, um, and uh, booksellers. And in just the last week or two to this, uh, the run-up to this talk, I've been contacted by no fewer than three scholars exploring these ideas. We are, I think, at the crest of a wave of interest in these technologies, and we must know how to identify them accurately. But despite these developments and others, there remains no single authoritative, easy-to-use guide to properly identifying and describing these duplicating methods. 
my thought was, and continues to be, that a, system, a systematic, detailed approach to document interrogation, modeled on Bamberg Gascoigne's identification of prints, was and remains badly needed. I've been working on such a book for the past several years and plan on pu publishing in the first edition in 2019. But what I would like to talk to you about tonight is not, for the most part, the actual methods of delineating these processes. Unfortunately, we lack the time for that. Rather, I would like to discuss some of the challenges inherent in their identification, why the, uh, discuss why the ability to conduct such identification is important, and finally, to consider how duplication complicates some traditional notions of bibliography. What I hope to do is frame the problem and give examples of why addressing these problems matters. But what are duplicating technologies, and what exactly separates them from most traditional printing methods? First, most traditional printing methods, with the notable exception of lithography, are in one form or another three-dimensional, either relief or intaglio. Duplication, meanwhile, is entirely planographic. Whether lifting alanine dye from a gelatin bed in the aforementioned tectography, passing printer's ink through a stencil in mimeography, or melting black resin on paper as in xerography, duplication relies neither on relief nor recess for its effects. Second, traditional printing is generally a rather elaborate process, one that requires training and even sometimes an extended apprenticeship. Think of the letterpress workshop or the linotype operator. Therefore, traditional printing is executed primarily by professionals. It is a trade. Duplicating, in contrast, is usually less elaborate and requires little to almost no training. Duplicating could therefore be described as at the most semi-professional and far more typically simply amateur. We are all aware, for example, of how easy it is to make a Xerox, but I could also teach any of you to operate a ditto machine in about three minutes. Further, it follows from these premises that traditional printing is the more expensive. In no small part, this is because what happens in traditional printing is the transformation of the text essentially from manuscript to print through the intermediary of type. Meanwhile, in duplication, what we have is the presence of a master or an original from which the finished product is derived and to which it appears identical or largely so. So in traditional printing, what we have is production, and in duplication, what we have, at the risk of stating the obvious, is reproduction. Parenthetically, I think it's worth considering distinctions between duplicating and copying processes. Copying processes are best suited when making a small number of copies. A typewriter or carbon paper should therefore rightly be considered a copying technology. And while there are duplicating technologies that can also be used as a copying method, this was in fact the enormous breakthrough of the Xerox machine, generally what separates a duplicating and a copying technology are the number of copies one can efficiently create. It would not make sense to cut a mimeograph stencil to run off three copies or to print a book by Verifax a process more akin to trying to copy a text by individually uh, developing a photograph of each page, although I should mention I do have an example of that in the collection, a literal photocopy of a pornographic Tijuana Bible. Um, and while I can think of examples such as the 1980s downtown New York City literary magazine Between C and D, which was published using a bank of dot matrix printers, including two on loan from Epson, in, an, in the apartment of editors Catherine Textier and Joel Rose, each copy taking more than an hour to print, where inefficient means were used to achieve particular ends, nevertheless, I find these distinctions between printing and duplication and duplication and copying useful. So how did we get here? Why, after more than 150 years of duplication, does the scholarship for these materials much more resemble Fredson Bauer's infamous tabby cat of bibliography, which is to say casual and largely scientific, more than his more academically rigorous tiger, from whom I take my title this evening. 
First, there is the problem of terminology. Many processes have multiple names. Hectography, for example, can be referred to variously as a hectograph with at least several different common spellings, a jelly or gelatin duplicator, the alanine method or process, a mud or clay duplicator, these sometimes being added to the gelatin bed to help strengthen it, sometimes simply a graph or copy pad, a hecto, a transfer tablet, a jelly graph, a Shapiro graph, named after the alleged inventor of the process, but evidence strongly suggests he stole the idea, a story for the, another time, and even a Turkish duplicator for, real, for reasons that no one seems to understand. You can see the problem. Now multiply that by all the duplicating technologies. And this is to say nothing of various brand names given to what are essentially the same hectographic processes. Centigraph, azograph, bandograph, chromograph, chemograph, grapholithic, simplex, plex, tablegraph. And such eponymization of brand names lend a further confusion across these duplicators. I see mimeographs, a word that itself began as a 19th century brand name, often referred to as having been roneoed or gestetnered, a term which it's themselves refer to companies that manufactured the equipment, despite the fact that functionally there is no essential difference between the two machines being described. Both are stencil duplicators. Similarly, we've all unconsciously used Xerox for a variety of photocopy technologies. And even the word photocopy, which I think most of us use to refer to what would properly be described as xerographic duplication, illustrates yet another problem, the genericizing of these words. Technically speaking, photocopy can accurately describe any process utilizing light, photocopy, from traditional Xerox to photo offset to Verifax, and even under certain circumstances with the development of the electric stencil cutter in the mid-1960s mimeography. And mimeographed or mimeoed have similarly been appropriated, as our Howell example shows, to describe material ranging from actual stencil duplication to spirit duplication to offset a situation itself further exasperated by the popularity of the term Mimeo Revolution, coined to describe the explosion of small publications in the post-war period, but which includes not only works printed by a variety of duplication methods, but even, paradoxically, letterpress. And this is a problem we see even among the creators of these materials. I regularly encounter editors and publishers misdescribing their own work. This is perhaps my favorite work of the Mimeo Revolution, Dan Saxon's Poets at Le Metro. Produced by Spirit Duplicator, Saxon would hand out masters at Le Metro's readings for poets like Ted Berrigan, Leroy Jones, Allen Ginsberg, Diane de Prima, and others to copy out poems right there from their notebooks or compose on the spot. This spontaneity is almost entirely permitted by the technology. Creating a spirit master is as simple as writing on a sheet of paper. Saxon would then gather up the masters, run them off, and compile them for the next week's reading. It's my favorite because of the immediacy of the result. You get to see the poet's hands. Here, for example, is Allen Ginsberg. But Saxon himself, in writing about the Metro, has described mimeographing it on a Gestetner. Despite the fact that not only is Le Metro decidedly not mimeographed, but that as far as I can tell, Gestetner never made a spirit duplicator. Or take this, Clash Fanzine, London's Burning, issued in December 1976. I purchased this a number of years ago, and it included the letter of provenance on the right, where its editor, John Ingram, writes, quote, The best photocopying shop in London was off Shepherd's Bush Green. They had one of the country's first uh, color copy machines, and their black and white copying was of excellent quality. I ran off enough, I ran off enough to create 100 copies. But London's Burning was photo offset duplicated. 
And while there is enough vagueness in Ingham's recollection to perhaps account for this, the distinct impression left by the letter is that of a young fan standing over a copy machine, one of Punk's quintessential cliches, when in fact the story is both more complicated and I would argue more interesting. Again, this is not to criticize or embarrass these creators. They are, after all, recalling details decades after the fact or unaware of how print shops or their machines typically operate. But I also suspect in some cases that the romance of certain methods unconsciously corrupt the record. Gestetner retains a similar cachet in certain circles to that which Vandercook now has in some corners of the letterpress community. And I, and, and quote, I photocopied them sounds way cooler than I dropped them off and picked them up again later. <laughs> But time itself is undeniably part of the problem, not only because technologies become obsolete, but because first-hand knowledge of them decays as well. This can mean, for example, that we often have a distorted view of how long some of these technologies were in use. Although I've never encountered this for American punk, I've seen at least several mimeographed promotional punk flyers, like these for the Sex Pistols, from the UK, where post-war recovery, 1970s recession, and I might argue a certain British thriftiness, meant that these machines were kept in service at copy operations well past their perceived obsolescence elsewhere. And as this example shows, part of the battle when it comes to duplicated materials is that in many ways we don't see them. The pistols flyers may read as Xeroxed, but without, clo but without closer examination we run the risk of lumping them in with American punk's DIY Xerox aesthetic, when in fact they were much more a reflection of punk's particular origins in the UK, an extended period of economic stagnation and waning cultural influence, which is to say, obsolescence. But we don't see this in large part because we lack the tools to accurately describe the object itself. But at least as much, it is these documents' ubiquity and often mundanity that render them bibliographically invisible. I appreciate Lisa Gittleman's use of the very term documents in this context to capture something of this invisibility. Documents are ordinary, everywhere, boring. And yet, as we're increasingly beginning to understand, they are also the repositories of underappreciated histories, often of marginalized communities whose primary means of capturing their stories were via these very technologies. Here, Come on, there we go. Here, for example, is one of the most boring and ordinary document we might imagine, the medical form. But look more closely. This is a verifaxed maquette for a phone consultation form from an early California AIDS clinic circa 1983. Why Verifax, a technology at the time perhaps 15 years out of date? I suspect they couldn't afford anything better. Indeed, I think one of the reasons we have gotten this far without a unified bibliographical language to describe these duplicated materials is that it is only in a rel relatively recent years that any kind of market for them has existed. And I'm not using market merely in the narrow sense of a book dealer. I would also refer more broadly to the scholarly market. To a large extent, bibliographic concerns only exist where there is either a, sc a scholarly or financial interest. In other words, all bibliographic work occurs in a context and it is only in the last decade or two that we've begun to fully reckon with the counter-cultural contexts, such as LGBTQ, civil and women's rights, often preserved in these documents. And so in this sense, much of the bibliographic work surrounding duplication that remains can be seen as political. And while this, and while this project may have begun with the commercial concerns of a bookseller trying to authenticate items he was selling, I am increasingly aware of the many narratives that can be extracted from these documents when they are properly understood and the necessity and responsibility of telling them. And these stories can be told in much the same way they are in traditional bibliography. 
just as we can sometimes infer the numbers of compositors or the order of printing in a letterpress operation, we can often infer quite a lot about the circumstances of production by knowing the method of duplication. Hectographs, for example, can be, used, made, can be made using ordinary household products, so ordinary, in fact, that they are often found as here in, a 19, in an 1890s American manuscript cookbook. Um, you'll note it's right next to the cucumber pickles down at the bottom. Because of this simplicity, they were often perfect for primitive conditions, like missions, we might think back to the hymn book I showed you earlier, likely created for some small, perhaps rural faith community without access to or resources for more sophisticated printing, battlefields, where they were sometimes used to create maps on the fly, or even oppressive political regimes, where a difficult-to-hide mimeograph could land you in jail, but a gelatin duplicator used to produce samizdat could literally be washed down the drain. Likewise, addition sizes can often be inferred. Though hectographs get their name for the root, from the root for 100, they could only inconsistently produce more than 50 copies at a time, and often as few as just a couple dozen before the gelatin bed would be exhausted. Similarly, spirit masters are often spent after two or 300 copies, and even under optimum operating conditions, paper mimeograph stencils, which theoretically could be used indefinitely, more practically tend to tear or wear out at about 1,000 copies. And while xerographic reproduction has no functional limit, it did for many years have an economic one. The most famous example of this being the so-called Xerox book, a landmark of conceptual art that the editors originally intended to print via actual Xerox, but when that proved far too expensive, was instead, ironically, printed photo offset. Similarly, let's consider this real Xerox book from 1969. This is German avant-garde filmmaker H.H.K. Schoenherr's Play 9, a telephone book-sized collection, more than 750 pages, of xerographically reproduced stills, and part of a numbered series of experimental films he created over many years, some of which only exist as concepts or here as a book. This volume would have cost almost $100 each in 1969, or about $700 in today's money, so it would be safe to assume that we are looking at a small, if not a tiny, print run, and indeed, OCLC does not locate any copies or even the title. Similar is the curious story of the ad hoc bulletin. It looks, by almost all measure, to be a rather typical, radical 1960s leftist newspaper, the sort published in nearly countless numbers all over the country during the era. Purportedly the voice of a splinter group of the U.S. Communist Party, its appearance is deceptive. While it's safe to say practically all other such publications were mimeographed, or perhaps offset if they reached sufficient circulation, the ad hoc bulletin is photocopied. You can see here and here the trash marks and background toner noise. Darren Trumbly, an intelligence researcher who has written about the ad hoc bulletin, notes that the U.S. Communist Party worried the bulletin had, quote, national backing. And I can't help but wonder if the party's suspicions stemmed from the implied expense in how the bulletin was produced. In the early 1960s, when the bulletin began, Xerox machines were almost exclusively found in large companies who leased them from Xerox and paid a per-copy fee. Such machines were rare, if not unheard of, in ragtag fringe political operations. And indeed, the Communist Party was correct. The ad hoc bulletin did have national backing. It was the nearly 20-year project of the FBI's ad hoc committee, a counterintelligence program created to sow discord among the U.S. communists by creating the impression that there was a thriving and competing domestic Chinese communist offshoot. 
And though, as Trumbly's writing suggests, it in part had its desired effect, likely without realizing it, the FBI telegraphed the bulletin's bureaucratic origins, much like a slightly two-square infiltrator or an agent in a bad disguise. And this is true to a certain extent of the Pettibon flyers as well. The fact that they are offset, a decidedly non-DIY method of reproduction, and one that usually only makes economic sense when printing in large numbers, suggests a level of ambition, professionalism, and marketing savvy that in many ways belie traditional anti-establishment, anti-commercial punk narratives. Further, when it comes to preserving these item stories, we, might, we must also understand how knowing the method of reproduction can have profound actual archival and conservation implications. For example, the paper, the paper used in stencil processes, especially those from World War II and earlier, tend to be quite porous so as to more easily take on the ink. These papers, therefore, tend to be of a poorer quality and prone to uh, poor quality, pulpy, dry, and prone to becoming brittle. Likewise, the resins of certain xerographic processes can stick to each other when stacked, while many of what I think of as failed duplicating processes, like Thermofax, Diazo, or Verifax, as here, um, that's the Verifax maquette on the left for the eventually offset letter on the right, and you can see how much, um, you know, at the time this was printed, that would have been all um, white, white enough to create the uh, final product, um, are chemically unstable. And alanine processes, such as hectograph and spirit duplication, are water-soluble as well as fugitive to light, a fact that not only has display implications, but bibliographic ones as well. For example, let's return to the Howell Ditto. After this was originally run off in 1956, Ginsburg retained the masters, and sometime after 1969 or so, when the Gotham Bookmart began appraising Ginsburg's papers, these same original masters were used to produce an unauthorized edition completed without Ginsburg's permission. And while some are stamped by the Gotham as here, um, this copy uh, came up at the same time as the last copy at Bonham's in 2013, not all were stamped. Here, for example, is my own copy of the Gotham Howell, but lacking the stamp. As you might imagine, it can be difficult to distinguish the true 1956 edition from the unstamped Gotham. And in the standard bibliography of Ginsburg by his archivist Bill Morgan, Morgan offers in part that one way to distinguish the two is the, quote, color of the ditto ink used, end quote. However, given that alanine processes such as ditto are light sensitive, indeed sensitive to a number of environmental factors, their appearance is heavily dependent on the conditions in which they were kept, and my research suggests that color is not a reliable method of telling one howl from another. But just to linger a little bit longer on the Howell Ditto, because it's a good example of how duplicated materials can complicate bibliographic concepts. While I have heard the Gotham Howell referred to variously as a facsimile, a piracy, a second edition, or simply a reproduction, bibliographically speaking, it is in fact an unauthorized second impression, having been struck from the original setting of type, in this case, the original masters. But even this term does not quite get at the strangeness of this object. Because while Morgan describes different ditto inks, this too is incorrect. The ink, such as it is, is not a separate element as in most printing. Not added to the machine as in a mimeo, but rather a part of the master itself, 
which the solvent, the spirit of spirit duplication, subsequently dissolves slightly so that it can be transferred onto the clean sheet of paper passing under it. By way of analogy, and to take another landmark of 20th century poetry, this would almost be as if we could, from the original standing type, not only print a new impression of Eliot's Wasteland, but print it with the very ink used by Leonard and Virginia Woolf at the Hogarth Press in 1923. Second impression for me does not quite capture the immediacy of such an object. Indeed, if Stanford, where Ginsburg's archive now resides, would allow it, we could likely still print yet another impression tomorrow from the very same masters with the very same alanine ink, an unbroken chain from Ginsburg, who wrote the poem, to Robert Creeley, who typed the stencil, to Martha Rexroth, who cranked the machine. I'm not sure we have a term for this yet. And as the Howell and the Pettibons apply, with duplication, questions of authenticity are often primary, much more so, I think, than they are with books. For while, while we are all aware of famous cases where printed matter was forged wholesale, such as the Galileo Sidereus or the Wise Forgeries, or even Mark Hoffman's infamous broadsides, these cases are at the moment gratefully rare because the technical and historical know-how required to execute them convincingly has typically been difficult to acquire. But this has never been true with duplication. Traditional bibliography usually concerns itself with primacy, which is to say determinations of issues, states, printings, and editions, but only occasionally with authenticity. Indeed, authenticity is the rather more narrow purview of the autographed or the inscribed, the manuscript, or perhaps the altered or the sophisticated. But with duplication, which is much more easily reproduced, authenticity often must be the first concern. This, oops, sorry, there we go. This Warren Flyer may look authentically punk, but it is in fact a forgery. While original flyers were often stapled up around town to campus bulletin boards, construction site plywood, and the like, a blotchy third or fourth generation recopy such as this, and remember, originals would have been offset, would never have seen the side of a telephone pole, yet somehow whoever faked this wants me to believe these staple holes. Did anyone ever staple a poster to their wall? You use tacks. But more troubling is that in duplication, the very idea of what is a fake or a forgery can itself be rather complicated. Duplication blurs the distinction of what we might even consider authentic, because while this flyer was created with the intention to deceive, many others were almost certainly contemporary. Sorry. Um, because while this flyer was created with the intention to deceive, many others were almost certainly contemporary duplications created as part of Punk's well-established trader culture. Fans often traded tapes through the mail, but also frequently flyers. Indeed, even Henry Rollins, Black Flag singer from 1981 through 1986, their fourth, um, described this phenomenon as he experienced it before joining the band. We used to collect Black Flag flyers on the East Coast, a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox, these distorted, smudgy copies of a copy of a copy. So. If I'm looking at a flyer such as this one that shows what I now think of as the telltale signs of these traitor origins, the trifold, so as to fit in a standard envelope to mail to your friends, to say nothing of its decidedly more sincere tech holes, an item that was reproduced with no intent to deceive under conditions emblematic of the community from which it originated, often tacitly supported, as the Rollins quote suggests, by the bands themselves, 
and perhaps even made by the exact same method of reproduction as the original document, what is the accurate bibliographic term for this? It's not a facsimile or a reproduction, which would suggest an officially sanctioned activity. It's not a piracy, which implies commercial exploitation, nor is it a forgery or a fake, which would imply deception. Indeed, given its origins, isn't there a measure of inherent authenticity that demands to be acknowledged, and that a term like later impression or state just doesn't capture? Or to rephrase, doesn't this object, too, have a story, one that on some level is worth preserving and telling? I've taken to calling these regenerations, but even that term, frankly, doesn't feel like I'm giving them their due. Duplication also upends our bibliographic notions of primacy. Indeed, in duplication, we can have the unusual situation where the reproduction is more significant than the production. For, uh, think of, for example, Daniel Ellsberg's Xeroxing of what would become known as the Pentagon Papers, which to my mind are as interesting, if not more so, than the original documents they copied. Or take this book. Jack Kerouac's uncollected writings, pirated in at least two small photocopied editions by friends in the wake of his death. The book is, to me, a tender homage to Kerouac's legacy after his rather sordid decline and through years when he was critically out of favor. I find it imp more important, more significant, than the legitimate publications that preceded it and from whose Xeroxed pages this book was assembled. To use but one metric, if you can find a copy of the uncollected Kerouac, it will run you almost as much, if not more, than many first editions of On the Road, and in my opinion, rightly so. It further is a good example of how duplication can blur the distinction between the hand press and machine press eras. Here, for example, is the elaborate pagination of the revised second edition of the Kerouac. And just as a complicated collation tells a story, so too does this. One of those, a story of those carrying Kerouac's torch, tending to his fading reputation, and carefully adding supplementary material when they find it. Um, note two, um, just as a side note, uh, the increasingly bad reproduction between the first edition and the second, because one was derived from the other. Duplicated uh, publications can in other ways more resemble hand press era books than modern ones, individually assembled and often uh, with evidence of their makers. I've found literal footprints on pages left by compilers undoubtedly gathering up issue leaves in crowded apartments. Missing leaves, extra leaves, leaves and pages out of order, misprint pages, hand corrections, staples in weird places and the like are routine in duplicated materials. They are often, like early hand press books, unique objects of their own making. Potentially most troubling of all, however, and I should add that this is very much at the leading edge of my research, um, and I thank James Asher, since he's in the audience, for introducing me to this concept, is how duplication may complicate G. Thomas Tansel's notion of bibliographic tolerances. I'll quote him. One of the axioms of bibliographical description, therefore, should be that the tolerances of the bibliographer, under normal circumstances, must not be smaller than those of the producer of the object described. In other words, the bibliographer should not, without good reason, be measuring physical characteristics of the materials under his or her consideration, which the original producers of the object was not also, were not also aware. But while this is an eminently useful idea when producers are professionals whose trade is printing, what does one do when the makers of these objects are rank amateurs, often with little or no understanding of the machines they are using? And while I have found this idea of bibliographical tolerance indispensable when approaching most materials produced in the decades before the advent of home printing and desktop publishing, 
After this, the proliferation of home copy and duplicating machines, as well as the technical improvements in various xerographic methods, has me wondering if at some point we won't be determining authenticity or issue points based on perhaps the average diameter measured in microns of beads of toner on a page, or their average density over a given area, or to return to some failed initial volleys in my research and alluded to by David Platzker at the outset of this project, dating paper via blacklight to measure relative amounts of optical brightener. These are not the typical tools of the bibliographer, but they may soon become so. I am already using not just a loop, but a digital microscope to examine most of the materials I handle and suspect I have long ago crossed Mr. Tansel's tolerance threshold. In the age of duplication, the bibliographer may very well have to know more about the object under consideration than its producer. Finally, there are printers in the duplicating pr tradition that deserve as much recognition, in my opinion, as printers in the letterpress tradition. But because their methods are in many ways no longer understood, their accomplishments too can be rendered, as we've seen in other examples this evening, essentially invisible. So I'd like to end tonight with some examples of the beauty and artistry of duplication, ones I hope we can out now all more easily see. For example, this is Sherry Martinelli's Anagogic and Paydumic Review, undated but late 1950s, featuring this stunning cover portrait of Bohemian Joyce Grieg, uncredited but likely and appropriately by one William Morris, whose geometric effects were achieved, I think, by scraping away at the otherwise completed original spirit master, a technique I've never seen before or since. <coughs> Likewise, this energetic broadside from San Francisco's communications company, whose intricate lineation and Moorish patterns would have required not only multiple mimeo stencils and multiple runs, but an expert and delicate touch in handling them. Or these poignant stencil duplicated end papers by a German POW, Gustav Mahler, whose gra that graced a book of folktales produced in 1918 at the Bando prison camp in Japan, and whose sophistication was so subtle I at first couldn't believe they had been done on a mimeo. Or finally, this, my favorite piece in the entire collection, a deceptively simple mimeographed portrait of the World War I internment camp at Nakalo on the island of Man. Executed in 1917 by one P. Luders, presumably also a German POW, it shows an exquisite use of stencil techniques, from the sky merely alluded to with traces of blue, to that same blue's use of negative space to suggest clouds, to the two runs through the press that it would have required to create this dense green at the top of the peak, or perhaps most of all, the expertly rendered registration. Oops. Sorry. The expertly rendered registration, which would have required at least five separate runs through the machine, as you can see here in this approximately two-inch square detail. A fact, indeed, as are all of these facts, made all the more remarkable when we consider that this was printed on the removed laid paper of a book. You can see the remnants of the stitching holes along the top edge, which if it suggests, as I think it does, that the that paper was scarce at the camp, and that looters likely only made one of these, and hence only had one chance to get it right. 
This, to me, is remarkable. And it is creators like Mr. Luders that I would like to recover. As I hope I have demonstrated this evening, when we properly understand the duplicating processes used to create these objects of material culture, we can recover their stories in ways that would be otherwise impossible. I am, hope, I am hopeful of a concerted, coordinated, and communal effort to acquire this knowledge, even in the face of technologically and bibliographically difficult questions, but the history of the book will be the richer for it. Thank you. And I went long. Thank you for all for bearing with me. We have some time for questions. We'll take a few at Stephen? Right. That right. Well, oh no, absolutely. I I think all of these are in good faith. Um, uh, but but the, the situation you describe, I think, is exactly the situation that people are offering offer encountering. They're bringing their material to the copy shop and saying, "I want 500 copies of this." And the copy shop is going to make them in whatever way makes most economic sense for them. They're not necessarily going to be. Um, dis discussing all of the various options with the person who's bringing it to them. Um, and so the, you get them back, and you think they've been copied, and indeed they have, but you make certain assumptions about what that means that aren't always true. Haven? Yeah. Um, silkscreen and lithography proper are certainly planographic, um, but they are not really duplicating methods. So they, they are kind of exceptions to what I'm to what I'm what I'm talking about. Um, I don't mean to suggest that those are um, the only planographic methods. Um, I just mean to suggest that copying, uh, the duplicating and copying is um, is a planographic process. Um, does that? Am I understanding the question? Yeah. I don't feel anybody's done this better than Matt Kirschenbaum, so I, I don't know that I want to step on his toes, um, and I don't think I could d discuss it with, with his authority. Um, but uh, um, I can say that as a dealer, I'm, I'm handling more and more born digital materials, and it's a tricky area, um, because it's, it's not only a duplicating method, it's arguably the perfect duplicating method, and that you're getting really an almost indistinguishable um, copy. Um, so, you know, if, if we're thinking about the sorts of questions that get raised with these actual printed documents, to me they feel even more pressing um, and even more difficult when we're talking about electronic and computer methods. 
Um, and, uh, and and I, I don't I don't have I don't have the answers to that. Yeah, the, this is one of the reasons that at the end of my talk I, I drew a distinction between the, the dawn of the desktop era um, and the home printing era and pretty much what I've been describing today. Um, things get really, really wonky beginning in the 1980s um, just because of the proliferation of, of uh, printing methods that exist in people's homes. Um, and you're absolutely right, a lot of those methods... Um, have uh, you know um, micro dot technology that are particular to a machine that can not only identify the printing method but in fact trace it back to the particular machine that that, that created it and I think um, as research catches up with um, uh, the methods that we 're using now we 'll see a lot more investigation of that from a bibliographic standpoint as opposed to really how it 's being addressed right now, which is almost as a forensic one I mean those micro dots are in there as anti counterfeiting uh, anti counterfeiting measures. Um, so that's really a, a, a forensic question, not a bibliographic one. Um, yeah. Might it be possible to make a copy of a mimeograph copy rather than uh, working again from the original master? Um, I ask because um, I'm working with a lot of um, publications by the concrete poet Bob Mm -hmm. um, some of which are switching from one uh, duplication technique to another, but some of which appear to be using the same duplication technique, but in different uh, collections, um, and often many years apart. So I'm wondering if he could have like made a copy of a copy, or he would have had to use the same stencil if it was in the same duplication process. Well, um, let me see if I'm understanding your, your, your question. All of them are mimeographed? All of no, these? No, not all of them are mimeographed, but sometimes the same thing will appear mimeographed, but many years later. So well, that could very easily just be the same stencil. Okay. Um, uh, uh, if the stencil's in good shape, there's, there's no reason that it couldn't be used years later and multiple times. Um, you could theoretically make a copy of a stencil. There are a couple of different ways to do that. The easiest one would be the, as I mentioned in my, in my talk, the electronic stencil cutter, which was basically like an early optical scanner, more or less. It was a wide thing with a drum on it, and you put an original on one side and the stencil on the other, and it scanned on one side and burned the stencil on the other. Um, it was basically either off or on, so it reproduced line art very well, but didn't reproduce like shades and tones all that great. Um, so you could theoretically do that, um, or somebody could have just taken, uh, you know, they, they could have taken the original mimeographed page and made a uh, offset litho plate and print from that. That would have been another way to do it. Um, but if they were both mimeographed conclusively, my inclination would be to think he saved the stencil. Um, yeah. Aaron? Hi. Hi.
materials that were produced from masters that were created by people in more corporate contexts. Right. And those people were mostly secretaries. Secretaries. And those people to the, I, I don't know very much about this, this is sort of like in a place that I want to explore my research, went to secretarial school right. or were trained, trained themselves using secretarial manuals. And there's a lot of really great like, webs It definitely does. Puts the secretary on the level of the compositor. Yes, um, it, and and that exact situation is one of the reasons that that um, I qualified it slightly to say that you can call some duplicating semi-professional. Um, and the reason I say semi-professional in that case, not and not professional, is because the job of the secretary in that position is not to be a printer. Um, and in many corporate environments, you actually had an entire print department. Um, you know, there, there would, at big corporations, you would actually have a dedicated unit to producing all of the forms for the business, um, anything that needed to be uh, uh, reproduced in large quantities. And they would have, um, they would have uh, their own offset, photo offset equipment. They would be able to make their own masters. Um, they would also have um, uh, smaller duplicating machines for smaller jobs like mimeograph and, um, and uh, spirit duplicating. Um, that said, there is a transition to when that starts to become more secretarial work. Um, but when it does, it tends to be either xerographic, mimeograph, um, or actually very commonly some of these failed technologies like Verifax and, and Thermofax. Um, that's, that's where you see that. But do you think that thinking of the secretary and the compositor as an, sort of oh, analogous, um, we think of a I do as well because, again, um, I think we run into this problem of how much do the people who are running these machines actually understand them. They can use them. Um, but, but actually, if you look at the process for making a Verifax, it's actually a sort of involved process that, is, that, that involves spraying a piece of paper and sticking it on and putting it under a very heavy light and pulling it out and exposing it like a photograph. And, and the chemical process that's involved in that would be an example of where you know, um, whoever's making that probably has no idea what's actually going on. In fact, I would argue that most people have no idea what's actually going on in a Xerox machine even today. Um, uh, whereas a compositor actually has a thorough understanding of, of what they're doing. Um, they understand the mechanics, the job, the technology, um, and uh, uh, in a way that I, think, that I think most of us don't even when using our home printer. We are going to continue the conversation at a reception in Brian's honor in the reception area at Rare Book School. Please join me in thanking him for an amazing talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.